All right, so we've been we've been trekking along through Genesis, um, and we've been focused on Abraham for quite a while now. We're going to get to Abraham, the final chapter in Abraham's life today, and we're not going to go too much further after this story with Abraham. Um, but uh, we're nearing the end with Abraham, and uh, last week, two weeks ago, we covered Sodom and Gomorrah, which doesn't have a lot of Abraham in it. But we do get Abraham looking out at the wreckage and the smoke going up in the air. And uh, then we picked back up with Abraham last week. We started off at the birth of Isaac. And uh, then we get Abraham sending Hagar and Ishmael away. And Abraham was distraught about that, having to send his son away. And then we get the uh, another story of Abraham pulling that old My Wife is My Sister card on another leader. And... Um, Eventually, Abraham makes peace with that king and finds peace with that king as he lives within his land. And so now we're going we're gonna to do a little bit of a time jump, and we're going to go ahead and go to Genesis 22. And Genesis 22 starts off, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, so we'll just stop right there. After these things, he's, they're talking about everything that just happened in chapter 20 and 20, 21. So... Kind of moved on. So after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And so Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So here we have God directly speaking to Abraham again. We know that that the New Testament refers to Abraham as friend of God. And that communication line is there. And Abraham doesn't seem to even blink an eye at this command. Because there's a lot of weird stuff here, right? So Abraham, Abraham, I'm here, and then I'm going to have you go kill your son. You're going to go sacrifice your son to me as a burnt offering. And we look at that, and we're like, oh, that's, that's a bit crazy. But I think, I think Abraham knew it was a test. I think Abraham believed that it all ends up well, right? And the thing that I liked about this is right away in Genesis 22, the author wants you to know that this is God testing Abraham. So we are to no way, and we'll talk about this a little bit further, we are no way to believe at this point as we read this text that God is into child sacrifice um, because it lets us know right away that it's a test. So that's good. The other thing I want to point attention to is take your son, your only son, Isaac. Does Abraham have any other sons? Yes. All right, so we've got to dive into that. What's that only one son thing? What's going on with that? Um. What's that make you think of when we talk about the only son? What verse pops to mind? Jesus. What verse specifically pops to mind? John 3.16. Yeah. Yeah. So let's look at John 3.16 because this is definitely, when John is writing this out, there's definitely allusions back to this in Genesis 22. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. 
only son of God. What does that mean? Because we just sang a song this morning that said that we're sons and daughters of God. We already have been talking about this group of spiritual beings that are referred to as the sons of God. So what's going on there? What's with this use of only son when there's other sons involved? And this gets into one of the debates in theology these days. We got there's, uh, there's kind of two camps. There is the King James camp that wants to keep that only begotten son as the, uh, as the interpretation of that Greek word right there called monogenes. So monogenes, you don't have to know too much with Greek or Latin. What's mono mean? One. And you look at the word genes or genes, we would say genes. What do we think about genes? We think about children. We think about passing on genes. We think about genetics, where we get the word for genetics. And we look at that and we're like, only one genetically. Okay, I kind of get that. But what does that mean? What they've done is, is when, we look at, when we look at Greek language, throughout the years as they go and they do archaeological digs and they find other documents, we are able to take everything that's in Koine Greek, which is what the New Testament is written in. And the only reason I'm bringing it up for the Old Testament is because they did write the Old Testament in Koine Greek. It was called the Septuagint. We've talked about the Septuagint before. That's the Greek translation. The word that they use in Genesis 22 in the Septuagint is that monogenes. It's the same word that John is using right here. So right away, if you're a reader of the Bible and you get your hands on this and you're reading through it, this is a hyperlink back, right? So right now we know that Genesis 22, they're modeling out something. They're modeling out, this is like a, it's like a, it could be an illusion. You could call it an allusion of like the sacrifice of Jesus. They're even using the same language in the Septuagint to, to bring people in on this. But going back to monogenes, more people, as we discover more, they look at how it's used in context in different documents. And they really think that it probably means one of a kind or unique of a special quality. It doesn't just mean begotten. The problem, the debate is you have the people that really like their King James Bibles and they really like God's only begotten son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son because that's what people always say, right? Even though we don't really read the King James, a lot of us don't really read King James. That's still how we say that verse, just because that's traditionally how it goes. Only begotten son, God has other children, not of the same nature or uniqueness of Jesus. That's what's coming out here. That's, that's the deal with Isaac, right? Isaac is the child of blessing. We know that there's an Ishmael. So we know the Bible is not contradicting itself. We know there's an Ishmael. So something has to make sense with that word. And it is the only unique. He is the son of blessing, he is the one the blessing is going to come through. And I think it's, it's important as we read that because it's also taking us to Jesus as the only one. And this, was, this word was a giant debate back in the third century. And this was something that they also discussed at the Council of Nicaea, was debate over this word because you had people that were saying that Jesus was a created being. And people were like, no, Jesus was not a created being. But look at the word monogeneous. You know, monogenes, it he had to have come from God. And they're like, no, he existed eternally with God. He was God. And so this was part of that whole debate in the third century. And so I think it's important when we look at this, we understand what the Bible's saying and we try to flesh out some of those words because otherwise you end up with, um, I'm willing to call them other religions. There's other 
sects or cults of Christianity that believe that Jesus is not God. They believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and they back it up by saying, look, the Bible is referring to these angelic beings or spiritual beings as sons of God. And now it's referring to Jesus as the Son of God. So therefore, Jesus must be an angel or just another spiritual being. And that's not what the text says if you are to believe that that only Son, that from himself only uniqueness, that's a different being. Does that make sense? That's how we, can, we get out of like, there's, I, there's the Jehovah Witnesses believe in Jesus. They believe in the sacrifice of Jesus, but they don't believe in the divinity of Jesus. The Mormons are along the same line. There's, there's people that, that take away from the godness that is Jesus. And that's an important word. And as we talk about it, because Genesis 22 is where it shows up first, uh, if you were to read the Septuagint in Greek, and, and they're, they're, making, they're making parallels here. And as we go through this story, you're going to see more and more parallels. But that's, that's kind of why we need to be careful when we say that. So like now, if you read the ESV, and I think even the NIV, I think it says the only one Son of God, Instead of like we just read in Genesis 22, it says only one. It doesn't say begotten anymore because there are people that are like, well, we're referred to as sons and daughters of Christ. Sometimes we're referred to brothers of Christ, meaning God has more sons and that whole idea of restoring us to the family. So, so that's how that works. Just kind of looking at that. That's how that verse is playing out. So going back, God has asked Abraham, hey, this unique son of blessing you're going to have to give him up. He's going to have to be burnt. And Abraham, it doesn't say if he had a hard night sleeping. We don't know. I'm sure he was wrestling with things, but the next morning he was up and at him, and he got it ready to go. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young man, young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they both went of them together. A couple of things to look at in this. This is the first instance in the Bible where it actually talks about worshiping God. It is the first instance where they use the word worship. And it is worship in this, this context of sacrifice. So that's interesting to me too. Yesterday we looked, or last week we looked at how the first use of the word prophet was in regards to Abraham and his healing of that king. Sometimes we've made worship into something else. We think about worship in different ways. And the first time the Bible is referring to the worship of Yahweh directly, it has to do with sacrifice. Something Something to think about. The other thing is the parallel. Who carried the cross up to the hill that Jesus died on? The son. Jesus had that wood on his back. And here we are ascending the mountain and Isaac's got all the wood on his back. He's carrying the wood up. So those parallels are already happening. Here we are in the 22nd chapter of the Bible and there are already large prophetic uh, parallels being thrown out to us. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, he said, here I am, son. So here there, it's fun because now you have Abraham and Isaac talking to each other the same way that God and 
Yahweh and Abraham were talking to each other earlier. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they both, and so they went, both of them together. Isaac at this time, they say, Isaac at this time, they think, was roughly about 25 years old. So this isn't like a, a little boy, Isaac. Isaac is not stupid. Isaac has to have some kind of thing going through his mind right now that one of us may not be leaving this mountain. And I'm sure that there's questions there. Um, and Hebrews 11 kind of paints this out more for us for understanding Abraham and understanding Abraham's thoughts on this. Um, and whoever the, whoever the author of Hebrews is, the pastor who wrote Hebrews, there's debate on that, but he says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son. So there he's using that word again. They're driving that home, whoever this author is. Of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And he considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So there's this knowledge that Abraham, people had the idea that Abraham was like, if I kill him, God's just going to raise him back up again. So I think that's like Abraham's, that's the worst case scenario um, for Abraham. But he believed. He believed that's what Yahweh would do. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, I, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. If Isaac is 20-something years old, Isaac did not put up a fight. Isaac just did it, either out of obedience to his dad, obedience directly to Yahweh, but right now that shows us the character of Isaac going into the stories about Isaac. And then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of Yahweh called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. All right. Calling to him from heaven. So what's that make us think of again? This is kind of the same scenario. Happened last week. First of all, who did we say that the angel of Yahweh probably is? Jesus. All right. So Jesus, he's calling out. Last week he was calling out to Hagar again from the heavens, telling Hagar and Ishmael what to do to make sure that Ishmael would be safe and the promise to Abraham would be restored. But in this case, again, he's calling out directly to Abraham. And Abraham says, here I am. And that seems to be the response that a lot of people give Yahweh when he calls out to them throughout the whole Old Testament. Here I am, send me. It makes me think of Samuel, but he keeps hearing God and... and uh, I forgot the priest's name. But he's like, just, just answer, here I am. Lord, what do you want? What is our response? That's a good thing for us to think about. What is our response? Are we even listening? And when we are listening, what's our response? He said, do not lay your hands on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the Mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. 
There, this talking about the geography of this place first of all. They say that um, they're not they're not really sure where Mount Moriah, if this is Mount Moriah or if this is just a high place in the Moriah region, because on Mount Moriah is where. You guys know where Mount Moriah is? It's the Temple Mount. Yeah. So they're not entirely sure if this is the Temple Mount eventually that they do because what we don't understand is, remember Melchizedek was the king of Jerusalem at the time. We know that that was further in a different place than this, so we just don't know. So that's why scholars and we, we just don't know if this happened on Mount Moriah. We know where Mount Moriah is, but is this just a hilly region of Moriah somewhere or not? But it is interesting because if it is, then it's even one more parallel. It's another parallel. So it's, it's like this is happening 3,500, 4,000 years before the shade of it happening again with Jesus on the same spot. That would be cool if it is. I don't know if it is. That would be really cool. And uh, in either case, we definitely see that this is definitely a sign to those who would be in Jerusalem. Also, they're riding up to the mountain on a donkey. It makes you think of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey during the triumphal entry. There's just lots of, there's lots of hyperlinks here that are being called to mind. It's just astounding to me how much of this, like you could just go through this and nitpick it, and how much of this has just played out during the Holy Week and uh, knowing this was written thousands of, well, hundreds and thousands of whatever it is before Jesus um, what I do want to talk about is the fact that a lot of people get crazy with this story because of the, the child sacrifice idea. And we know that God wasn't going to do it. We know that it was testing. Um, but people still like to point it out. So I'm just going to look through some stuff through the law and through the Old Testament just to like reconfirm that God is not for child sacrifice. We all know that. But, but people like to point at this as a reason Oh, you have a you have a cranky God who was going to have a man kill his own son, and I don't think he was ever going to have a man kill his own son. I mean, Genesis twenty two starts off by telling us it's a test. But let's just read through some Leviticus so that we know. Leviticus eighteen twenty one: You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of our God. I am the Lord. Molech um, was a Canaanite deity. They believe that he was a Canaanite deity of the underworld. He has names. They believe he's kind of the same God that the Sumerians had and uh, the Babylonians, like Enki and these other underworld deities. So that was the idea of that. And Moloch was, he was a bull. He was a big bull. And they would do these statues of the bull. And then they would, uh, there was a little, it's disgusting. There was a little caved out place in this giant statue of the bull there was fire underneath, and they would heat up the metal bowl so that the metal bowl was bull, not bowl. I'm not trying to say bull. I'm trying to think of something with horns. So it was like an anthropomorphic bull sitting with a little hole in his stomach, and they'd heat it up, and you'd place the infants inside, and the infants would just burn inside the statue of Moloch. And that was the, that was the worship of Moloch. And Moloch would do whatever you needed Moloch to do. You just brought him, you brought him your children. And so that's what they would do, and that was a really regular practice around. I don't know like, if it was like happens everywhere all the time, but we do know that it happens. We found there's documents that explained it and talked about 
how to build the Molech bull. It also makes you wonder a little bit about the golden calf in the wilderness and the fact that they just reverted to, let's just make a golden bull again. And how much of that, like how much of that was Molech? Was there similarities there? Um, it also takes you back when the Bible refers to the bulls of Bashan. Remember Bashan is, Bashan is that region of darkness, the Gentile part of the Galilee, and they, uh, they were known prized for their bulls and the worship of bulls up there too. So, I mean, it's, everything's connected there. That stuff still goes. There's still people doing the Moloch thing. We know that there's certain people in places of the world that are still doing their Moloch worship. God is saying, no, don't put your kid in there. It's not what we do. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who gives any of his children to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against the man and I will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do it all close their eyes to that man when he gives one of the children to Molech, meaning allows it to happen and just lets it go, and does not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan, and I will cut them off from among their people, him and all that follow him, in whoring after Molech. Some strong language. So we know Yahweh is not for child sacrifice. Very strong language. What I think is interesting, too, is there's a lot of people that don't want to talk about the lesser gods, those deities, those that were set up over the nations, or the different fallen spiritual beings. But the reality of it hits home with this passage, because what you see from God is there's some, there's some hatred for that. There's some hatred for those beings and what those beings are doing with people. And if it wasn't real, do you think God would be about killing all these people for worship of a fake thing? Would he be that strong against an entity that's not alive? I don't think that that's the case. So it's just another, another time where it talks about that. And then continuing, he lumps this in with, if any person turns to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, there's that jealousy part of it again. You've, you've switched your belief, your loyalty. You've switched it from Yahweh to these other beings. And now you're, you're whoring around with these other gods. If a person turns to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, I will set my face against that people and cut him off from among his people. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. And someday we'll have to talk about sacred space a little bit more. Deuteronomy 10 will also continue. There shall be found among you, there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer of one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Isaiah, further on, Isaiah, in the time of Isaiah, we're going to jump into the future hundreds of years. This is still going on. It's still associated with pagan worship. It's still associated with the different rituals and magic of the time. You who burn with lust among the oaks, under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys, under the clefts of the rocks. So in this case, he's talking about those who are, who are worshiping other, other deities, other lowercase g gods. 
And uh, he's talking about, like, who burned with lust among the oaks. So he's talking about sex magic rituals and the killing of children rituals, the stuff that they... Some of that stuff still goes on today. And it's just, that is not, that is not for us. That is not for us. God has never intended child sacrifice. That's not a thing. So getting back to the story. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is of the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. So here we get another prophetic message, another, um, another prelude of Christ. So he's going to multiply the offspring as the stars of heaven. That's not just a quantity thing. The stars of heaven is a quality thing. Remember, they thought of the stars as spiritual beings at the time. Um, the stars of heaven and as the sand that is the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And that's all stuff that Jesus does. He goes and he possesses the gates of the enemies. He's in the ground for three days, comes back with the keys. The enemies are destroyed. He sits at the right hand of God. And because of that, all of the nations, those under false gods, those who are under that jurisdiction, because Jesus is at the right hand of God, all of those nations are allowed to come back in. That's Paul's mission. That's why Paul refers to this uses these allusions oftentimes in his letters as he's dealing with the Gentiles. The nations are all invited back in. Because you have obeyed my voice. And so Abraham returns. So he returns to Beersheba, and that's where he's living. Now, after all these things, it was told to Abraham. And this is kind of where we get the fast forward. Abraham's on his way out. Behold, Milcah has also borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn... Probably Ooze, it's probably Ooze and Booze, his brother, which is fun. Camuel, the father of Aram, uh, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. So there's your, getting you ready for Isaac. These eight Milka bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Makkah. Um, we're not going to do much more with Abraham, so we're just going to kind of finish up Abraham. Sarah's going to die. He's going to go, and he's going to find land up by the Oaks of Mamre that he can buy as the family burial plot. And then that is its own story, if you want to continue with that. And then, at some point, after she's dead, Abraham takes a concubine, takes concubines, takes a wife, and takes a couple more concubines. Abraham actually has, like, six more kids, which a lot of people don't realize that Abraham has more kids afterwards. Um, but Isaac is still the kid of blessing, still the kid of promise. That's the idea with Isaac. And so Abraham has more kids, and then Abraham eventually dies. And then we go forward with following the line of Isaac. And as we follow the line of Isaac, we're going to tune in even further by following the line of Jacob. And Jacob's other name is Israel. And so that's where we get our tribes of Israel. So all these other kids are kids of Abraham. They're out there, and they come back into the story. But the Bible is concerned with this unique, only blessed child who is going to bring in everything that we just talked about in that last little prophecy 
that Jesus gives Abraham. And so that's kind of how Abraham finishes out. And we'll probably pick up next on the Sunday school story list. There's some stuff with Jacob that people want it. So I think we're going to hit up Jacob. We'll talk about some of Jacob's stories. Jacob gets some cool things. He gets to wrestle with God. He gets to physically wrestle with God. He sees the, uh, he gets to see that stairway to heaven. It wasn't a ladder. Ladder is a bad translation. And we get to compare the stairway of heaven. And there's some comparisons to the Tower of Babel, which we already covered. Um, that's where we're heading. So just with this, when we think about we think about Abraham and we sum up Abraham, what we see is he's a pretty good guy. He's got some flaws. We all have flaws. But what he has is an unwavering belief in Yahweh and loyalty to Yahweh alone. And we can get through the lies and the tricks. And sometimes when he's doing those things where he's just trying to take things into his own hands and do things because he's trying to speed up the process, those are just character flaws. That loyalty still sits there. Loyalty that the next morning he gets up to go kill his son, whom he loves, and it's supposed to be the son of blessing. That's just who Abraham is. So when it talks about the faith of Abraham, it's talking about that loyalty. It's talking about that Belief that Yahweh is going to see me through. And in this story, too, very, like, this is, this is early Bible. And we see Yahweh is taking a personal interest in the life of his child. And there are things that he does for Abraham that we've seen in the future. Could be bad for the people of Israel, his own kids. But he still does it because Abraham is his guy. And that's the loyalty. And then later on, you know, the, the New Testament refers to Abraham as a friend of God. That is a relationship. So there is a relationship there to model. And as we go through the Old Testament, we see that that, that, that believing loyalty is the issue. That's the key. David, King David, is called a man after his own, God's own heart. David does some serious, stupid things. Undying loyalty to Yahweh all the way through. There's no issues with false gods with David. There's no issues with other things that David would would go for. He makes mistakes. He repents. In some cases, he pays a heavy price. But even paying the heavy price, he's Yahweh's man. And that's that's where David's at. So so we're going to see this as we go through some of these Old Testament stories. It's about faith working its way out in the way that you work your loyalty out with God. And I don't want to get all works-oriented, try not to get works-oriented, but there is a substance there with faith that has to occur with you doing life consistently with Yahweh, if that makes sense. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. We, we've had as an American society, and not just America. I shouldn't just pin it on America. We take people to Billy Graham Crusades, they fill out a card, they get a Bible, and they're saved. And what the Bible is showing us is it's so much more than that. That's not life with God. Now, if you continue on in your growth, and there is that, you know, I can't determine a man's salvation. But what I do know is that there is a biblical example of what people who have loyalty to Yahweh look like. 
And Paul emphasizes this day and night in his letters to all these different churches. And Abraham is our prime example. He's the first, he's the first guy the Bible focuses on for a long period of time. And that is his story. His story is faithfulness and loyalty to Yahweh. That's what it's about. We get caught up in so many different things and people get caught up in the whole fire insurance sales thing. That's not what it's about. It is about your life, living your life for Yahweh, doing what Yahweh has asked you to do. And now Jesus has made it possible for us to enter into that. So now we don't just have to wait for God to pick out certain people. There is an open door for everyone to do that. Jesus paid that price. Jesus went up on the mountain with his own wood and paid the price. And so now we can enter back into that friendship relationship with Yahweh, just like Abraham. So, not trying to scare people in their ideas of salvation. That's not what I'm trying to do. But it's, it's, more, than, it's more than that. We can't, it's not, I worry because we've kind of gotten into those evangelistic modes where it's like, oh great, yeah, we'd, we'd like you now. Now come to church and we'll disciple you. That's how it starts. That's the way it's supposed to go. But when we just go, we sign some cards and we say some things and the people go off to other, we have no clue. We have no clue. But people like to put checks on their, their board. So we saw people, 108 people come to Christ last year. Like, well, where are they? What are they doing? Are you following in? Are you making disciples? That type of thing. I didn't mean to go there. That's where I went. All right. I'm going to close up. I like Abraham. Abraham's a faithful dude. Likes to lie about his wife. I don't know why. There's just things about him, but he's fun. And I love Abraham. And someday we'll get to see Abraham. We'll ask him some of these questions. I'm going to ask him quite a few questions. So, all right. Dear Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you that you are again the same today as you were thousands of years ago in dealing with humans. And Lord, every week we emphasize that. And I am just thankful that I know that 20 years from now, you will be the same and you will regard me the same. And Lord, I'm thankful for you. Thankful for everything you've done. Thank you that you have this awesome plan coming through this Abraham guy that went through Isaac and beyond and that you delivered your unique only son. That you let that part of you become human. Lord, I'll never understand exactly how all that works, but I am thankful for what it resolved. And Lord, I thank you that you sit at the right hand and you've taken care of any of the issues of the nations and that that open door is there. And I love you, Lord. And I just ask that as you... We look forward to your return someday that you would find faith in the land, real faith. So Jesus, thank you. We thank you for all this. We thank you for your teachings. In your name we pray, Lord. Amen.